Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra Davidson. And I'm Anita Rao. Welcome back to She and Her. Tonight we are talking about reading and publishing. And as two nerds who grew up with our noses in books, we couldn't be more excited. Yes, this is a good episode. Anita, tell me about your your young reading life when you were a child in Iowa City, the city of books, right? The city of books. Yeah, the Iowa Writers Workshop is based there. So tons of novelists um, and really wonderful writers come through a big literary community um, and great public library. Great public library, yes. And my family were frequent patrons of the public library. We didn't have a TV in my house till fifth grade, so we spent a ton I mean, of time. I knew it was bad in Iowa, but dang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Just fulfilling the stereotype. Um, yeah, so we read all the time. We went to all of like the reading hours. We knew all of the librarians. Like by like their individual personalities. Ron Prosser was our favorite librarian. He was just a very kind guy. Hey, Ron. And we would like switch our position in line with other people so that we could check out with Ron because like he would like check out the book, but then also tell you a little bit about it and be like, I know you're going to love this one. Like he just really <laughs> knew us. And we were there so often that we were like the featured family in like the yearly brochure from the public library. Um, and then I went on to be a library volunteer, which meant like <laughs> spending like four hours a week volunteering at the library. At what age? I did it for years, um, probably starting in <laughs> third grade, maybe third through sixth grade. Okay. Yeah. It was a big deal. Um, and I would play fake library at home. I would like push my mattress down to one edge of the bed so I could demagnetize books and when they get like when they got <laughs> self checkout at the library, that was like I just couldn't believe it. My dream had come true. I could check out my own books. Yes. And didn't you used to read to your stuffed, stuffed animals? animals? I did. Yes, I would practice story. different like ways of holding picture books, which is like you know when you're read to in elementary school, you like pay so much attention to how everyone's hands are when they're reading. I did. Right. Yes. It's just like I just felt like I was like fixated on that, and so I would like to practice those different styles for. Yes my future communities of listeners. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, when I was in elementary school, we had this program called Accelerated Reader. And basically, you checked out books from the library, and you read them, and then you took a test, and you got points. And these points were tracked over the course of a month, and then the entire school year. And like, 
the, the the top five accelerated readers were announced and made public and I was very competitive announced, like in front of the whole school? like it was in like the school newsletter or something <laughs> okay. and I was super stoked about reading and super competitive about those points so I believe I was the queen bee of our accelerated reader programming in elementary school but then I went to middle middle school there and that's when the all of the the small rural elementary schools consolidated into one and there were there was some mean competition out there someone took over your status right they did they (laughs) did but in second grade one of my teachers she would give you like a blow-up banana for every 100 either 100 points you made on accelerated reader or 100 books that you read or something like that so i mean you know if you're reading children's books you can really put a lot in if you're putting effort in so i think i have like a stack probably of like like almost a foot high stack of folded old <laughs> banana like balloons in the attic of my house which I really need to dig up yeah to show we need to get a photo of these yes loved reading when I was a kid anyways we'll be getting to children's books in a minute here but all jokes aside reading is a political act and the world of publishing is a political field and it's as rife with gender issues as any other industry in this country And tonight we're going to get three perspectives on reading and publishing. We'll hear from a children's librarian, a publisher, an editor, and a novelist. So in preparation for this episode, we were digging around a little bit and thinking a lot about gender representation. And we came across a kind of startling statistic, which is from Florida State University. They conducted a study on gender representation in children's literature and found that on average, 57% of children's books feature male central characters while only 31% have female central characters. Damn. I know. So basically that means that little girls across the universe are seeing more boys represented as heroes and as victors and by translation as more important and more central than young girls in books, Mm -hmm. which is something that we see happening in other media for kids too, like cartoons and video games. Exactly. And as we've discussed on the show time and time again, representation matters. So that's what's on deck for us tonight. And our first guest is going to talk about how this gender inequality plays out for the young readers that she interacts with on a daily basis. Martha Waters is a children's librarian at the Chapel Hill Public Library, and she's noticed some interesting trends in what girls and boys are picking up to read on a daily basis. And one of the things that she's observed is how boys and even their parents request books with male protagonists, while girls generally accept and read books with either male or female central characters. So here's Martha talking a bit more about this phenomena. The most recent situation that comes to mind is from a few months ago when right before the holidays, a mom came in and was looking for some audiobooks to take um, to listen to in the car on their way to visit family. But she wanted something that would appeal to both her daughters and also her son. And she sort of specified that it couldn't be girly because her son wouldn't want to listen to it. Um, but she made, you know, no, the reverse was not true. She didn't make any statement about it not being able to be too much of a boy book because of the girls. Like, that was not an issue. It was only about it being too girly. It's This is not a thing that happens, like, all the time at work, but it is something that pops up from time to time. And what I think is more common than having it be explicitly stated is me having interactions where it's kind of implied where a parent will come in and ask for book recommendations for their son and all the books that they're listing off that he likes not a single one of them will have a female main character they'll be you know fantasy swashbuckling sword fights dragons things like that which for the record there are a lot of books about girls that fall in that genre and yet all the ones that they're listing 
are ones that have boys. But I do think it's noticeable once the kids get older that there are series like Harry Potter, which is equally popular with boys and girls and obviously has a male protagonist. But I'm hard-pressed to think of a book that's as popular as Harry Potter or Percy Jackson is with a girl at its heart that doesn't have a primarily female readership. I mean, thinking about young adult books like The Hunger Games or Twilight, both of those have female protagonists and both are really, really popular, but their readership, especially with Twilight, is so heavily female. Um, One of my absolute favorite families to help at the library is one where one of the kids is an elementary school-aged boy who sincerely does not care whether he reads about boys or girls, and it's so refreshing because it makes my job so much easier. It's way easier to recommend books to him. And just the other day, the mom came in and told me that the most recent book I'd recommended to him, which was about two sisters um, during World War II, had kept him up late at night reading. He didn't want to put it down. So I guess I just wish I could take this boy and show him to other families who think that their sons will only read about boys and just show them this kid and be like, I don't think he's weird. I think that this is normal for a boy to be fine reading about someone of the opposite gender. And yeah, I guess I just wish I could get that message out there that if we don't try, then nothing will change. And that's something that I think really needs to change. That was Martha Waters, a children's librarian at the Chapel Hill Public Library. And we were struck by both Martha's use of the word swashbuckling (laughs) (laughs) and her story. And we wondered what this phenomenon looks like from the perspective of a parent. So we were going to interview author Christy Woodson Harvey for this program anyways. And come to find out she is the mother of a four-year-old son. And we asked her about this general premise and she had something really interesting to say. We raise our daughters to be strong women, but if we're not raising our sons to respect strong women, then we're not really getting anywhere. And I think we have a little bit of a double standard about that. Like, we're happy to read our daughters strong male characters, but we don't want our sons to read strong female characters. And, I mean, I remember, you know, someone commenting to me one time when my son was really small. I read him the Olivia books all the time. I don't know if you've read those, but I'm in love with Olivia. I think she's the cutest, quirkiest, like, little storybook character that there's ever been and I would read to him about Olivia all the time and someone would say I can't believe you're reading your son about this you know little girl pig and I'm like why not she's awesome but you know even now we're sort of moving more into chapter books and that kind of thing and we're getting ready to start Matilda which is one of my favorite books I mean and she's just this strong brave fearless little girl and you know, the lessons in these books, you know, they might be about girls, but they're not just for girls. I mean, they're they're for boys, too. You know, I always say, like, that's the power of story is that it connects people in ways that are sort of unexpected. And, you know, if we're trying to bridge the gap between our differences, we need to raise our children that way, too, so that they understand that we may look different or we may seem different or we may act different, but we're all going through the same things at the same time. So that was North Carolina author and blogger Chrissy Woodson Harvey speaking some truth. And her second novel just hit the shelves this week and has already been named a 2016 Okra pick by the Southern 
Indie Booksellers Association. So women are the main characters in both of Christie's novels, and in her newest work, Lies and Other Acts of Love, she chronicles the relationship between a young girl and her grandmother and explores the dynamics of motherhood, love, and family. Christie draws inspiration from many of the strong women in her own life and join us to talk about the impact they have on her process as a writer. Well, it seems like you are drawn to writing these stories that include strong female voices, strong female characters. Can you talk a little bit about how you create these characters and is it important and essential for you to really tease out that female perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of my inspirations when I write, I have a a big family. My mom has three sisters and I'm really close with my grandparents, and um, and I have lots of cousins. And so I think I've kind of grown up in this family with this really strong female presence. And, you know, having as many female relatives as I do, everyone has sort of had their own life path and gone a different way and chosen a different thing. And I think, um, you know, the women in my family and, you know, my friends as well, it's really interesting to see, um, you know, their strengths come out at different times in their lives. And one of the things that I really enjoy about writing about families is how I feel like in real life and in fiction, um, when families come together, they're stronger than they are apart. Um, And they, you know, are able to compensate for each other's weaknesses and play off of each other's strengths. And I really enjoy writing about that, especially with my female characters, because I think women really do have the power to, you know, lift each other up and help each other and change each other's lives in really powerful ways. The really great thing about your story is that you wrote this manuscript and you got it published and you're, you know, you've published your very second book. Were there moments along that path where you were doubting yourself, where you were doubting your ability to do this, where you were questioning whether or not this was something you should be spending so much of your time and putting so much of yourself into? Oh, every single minute. I mean, I cannot even tell you. Like, it's one of those things that you do. I mean, you know, when you sit down to write a book, like, it's a huge risk because you know it's going to take a lot of time. It's not like you're sitting down, you know, for something that's going to take you an hour and if it doesn't work out, oh, well. I mean, this is something that you're probably going to be spending at least a year of your life on. I think I went into it kind of blindly. Like, I I wasn't really aware of how um, difficult it was to get published. And, of course, there's so many different ways to do that, but I just sort of had this dream of that, you know, big five New York publishing house and that was really at least where I wanted to start. Um, and I think, you know, when you talk about doubts, like, I wasn't sure I was good. I mean, I, you know, I thought it was pretty good. And, you know, like, my mom liked it. But, you know, everybody's mom likes what they do. And part of my journey was I needed that validation. And I think that was one of the reasons that I chose to go a traditional publishing route, because I needed the validation of someone else saying to me, yes, I've been doing this a long time, and and yes, I think this is good enough to put out into the world. You know, I didn't really have um, that confidence, but really my husband was one of the ones that kept me going because I would say to him, you know, how long do I keep doing this? And he would say, you know, until it quits making you happy. And um, that was such, that was something that I really needed to hear because I think, especially in our culture, we're very much um, driven towards goals and success and the next thing and the next rung on the ladder that sometimes we forget like I can do this because it makes me feel good um and I had to kind of carry that along with me when I was writing those first couple of manuscripts that I never really did anything with I had to think this is making me happy and and I I think eventually it's going to lead somewhere but if it doesn't I have to be okay with that 
Well, is there any advice you would give to aspiring writers out there, particularly women who may sort of lack that, as we are socialized to sometimes be, lack that confidence to take our creative work to the next level or even dream that it is possible for us to take our creative work to a level? Yeah, well, I mean, I just think, you know, it goes back to being that 17-year-old girl and that really basic thing that I learned. You know, we all have a story, and um, and, and your story is important, and my story is important, and everybody's story is important. And I think um, whether it's a story or a song or a piece of art, you know, I think we just have to, we have to not be afraid to take a chance on ourselves. And, you know, I hear so many people say, well, how do you balance it all, and how do you do all this? And I'm like, not well. I mean, truly, like, it doesn't have to look amazing. I mean, I'm sitting in a parking lot right now talking to you on the phone on the way home from the book signing, <laughs> going to go pick up my child for my mother. I mean, you know, it's not going to look, like, beautiful and gorgeous every day, and I have totally let that go. Like, I've let go of the idea of I'm going to do this all, and it's going to be perfect. Like, I'm done with that. Like, I am doing the best I can, and I feel like if we can put ourselves in that spot where we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be, you know, following our passion and doing what makes us happy. And I think when we do that, like, and we go into it with passion and a sense of purpose, then I think the most amazing things really come out of that. Um, and since I'm on peas, um, <laughs> especially for writers out there, you have to be persistent. Like, you're going to get told no a lot, and it's going to stink, and it's going to feel bad. Um but that's how it is, you know, and, and you get those no's because eventually you're going to get that yes and it's going to be so much better because you got all those no's before. That was author Christy Woodson Harvey, whose latest book, Lies and Other Acts of Love, came out earlier this week. So both of Christy's novels were released by Berkeley Penguin Random House, which is a well-established publisher that helps Christy access large networks of readers. And getting this level of attention, even early on in a career, is not easy for writers generally. And it's certainly not easy for many women writers trying to get published. Yes, that is right. And that's something we've heard over and over and something that our final guest tonight uh, joins us to talk about as well. So Lauren Spohr is the co-founder and producer of the hit podcast Criminal. But when Love she's it. <laughs> Love it. Um, but when she's not crafting artfully told radio stories, you can find her writing fiction and running her own digital publication called Two Serious Ladies. So she founded this magazine to promote women and women writers after she saw firsthand how tough the publishing world could be. Lauren went to graduate school for creative writing in New York and noticed that the same men kept appearing in the most sought after literary magazines. She thought that many of her women writer peers deserved that same level of recognition. So she founded Two Serious Ladies to lift up their work. She named the magazine after one of her all-time favorite authors, Jane Bowles, and told us a little bit about why Jane captures her attention. She's really completely my favorite person ever. Um, (laughs) She's dead. But uh, she she was married to Paul Bowles, so he's much better known. He was a fiction writer. Um, And she herself was a writer, so she wrote a lot of short stories, and she wrote one long story, some people call it a novella, called Two Serious Ladies, that is very funny and very depressing and completely off-kilter and just 
really different than anything else I had ever read before. Um, so then I started reading her letters, and then I read this biography of her, and I just kind of fixated on her as this person who, whose writing blew me away, but I had never heard of her before, and a lot of people have never heard of her. And her career was really overshadowed by her husband's. Um, although she really didn't finish a lot of things. And she had, she had a pretty serious drinking problem. And so I think Tennessee Williams really boosted her up. Truman Capote really boosted her. A lot of people were really trying to, you know, make her a bigger deal. And she just didn't produce that much. Um, so that's sort of like a personal thing for me. Like that sort of helps me because when I think about when I think about writers I really love that really make me really sit up straight and like start over from the beginning of the page again and make sure I'm really catching it all. I think about her and I think about how, you know, I, it's so easy to just not do the thing that you love to do and like watch TV instead or, <laughs> you know, you know, obviously like anything. Yeah. So I think that thinking about her and what she could have done. Um, under different circumstances kind of keeps me focused a little bit. Two Serious Ladies has published work from Roxane Gay and Heidi Jolovitz, and Lauren is now at the point where she receives more submissions than she has time to even edit and publish. But her criteria for choosing a submission has remained the same, and it really has little to do with the writer's fame or popularity. Lauren publishes work that she says gives her the same slightly dizzy happy feeling she gets when reading Jane Bowles. So in our conversation with Lauren, we talked a lot about what it means to intentionally create a space to lift up women's creative work. And it reminded us of conversations that have come up a number of times and she and her episodes. And it's this question of whether or not people want to have their gender associated with their creative work. So do they want to be women musicians or just called musicians? Do they want to be women writers or just writers? And we asked Lauren to talk about how she navigates this distinction with two serious ladies and in her own writing work. Sometimes I'll get submissions that are like, I think that this piece would really appeal to you because it's about like women's issues. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I see it as a really different thing. I see this as like sort of like an archive or like a way to, you know, bring more visibility to these artists that I love. Mm -hmm. So I see it as like a feminist practice in that sense. But I don't see the, any of the pieces of work up there or any of the pieces of artwork up there as something that would only appeal to women or to feminists or mm -hmm. something. It's just... I think that it's, it's, I'm almost seeing it as like a corrective to all of the magazines that don't feature a lot of women writers and haven't, you know, for decades. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it's a very small, right. <laughs> small gesture. Do you feel on a more personal level comfortable being identified as a woman writer or do you want to just be considered a writer? Do you think about that distinction? That's a good question. I definitely do. Like, I sort of bristle when people say I don't want to be seen as a woman writer I don't want to be seen as like a woman's musician well for instance some of my friends and I have gone back and forth about whether or not we should submit work under like androgynous pseudonyms mm -hmm. right like would we have a better shot of getting accepted at these places if it wasn't so clear and then the sort of conclusion that I've come to is like no I'm just going to stick with my name Lauren you know like I want to be proud of this of like mm -hmm. my identity this is who I am um, and there's something that in a way feels a little bit like I sort of bristle at the idea of hiding that somehow. Mm -hmm. um, but but I don't know. I mean, on the other hand, you don't want to imagine that there's a separate category or some separate, right. you know, measure of the quality. I, I actually just don't worry about that too much. Like, yeah. I feel like, I mean, especially now that there's a huge conversation around sort of like the visibility of 
people of color in like the literary community. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like a gigantic issue that we should discuss openly, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than say like, oh no, there's some objective measure of quality right. and everyone needs to live up to it. You know, like, no, like our identities are a huge part of of these conversations. And it is so much more subjective than just to say like, oh, well, she's a good woman writer. As someone who's been on both sides of the gun, as a writer and editor, and then as a publisher, we asked Lauren what type of support women writers need and what advice she has for them. One thing I've sort of learned along the way is that if you're going to make the cut at any given literary magazine, you're going to have to submit more than once. So, like, if you get rejected, don't feel weird about turning around and submitting immediately, right? Because it's going to take them forever to get back to you anyway. So I think sort of being aggressive in that sense is something that... When I've worked at other literary magazines, I noticed that men do. Men will take a rejection. They'll say, thanks so much. Like, will you take a look at these? Um, And women will wait a really long time. So even if I don't accept a piece from a woman, but I say, you know, I I would love to see more from you. Please send more. Sometimes they'll wait, like, a few months, and then they'll say, I hope it's not too soon. Hmm. So I feel Uh, like being... Apologizing. Yeah, I feel like being sort of fearless about, you know checking in with editors and also following up with a new submission if they indicated interest. Mm -hmm. Well, do you have any advice that you would give to young women who are considering writing as a career? I guess it's like, maybe don't think of it as a career. It's really expensive to go to school for it. I learned that the hard way. (laughs) Um, And it's hard to sort of put all your eggs in that basket. But I do think that the old sort of rule of thumb is like you should never submit to a magazine without reading tons of it Mm. I think like knowing what type of magazine you're submitting to is pretty important like I get a lot of like 29 page really traditional story submissions and all it tells me is like they've never read the site which is fine you know but on the other hand like someone will send a piece of work that's like really out there and it's exactly up my alley and I all I feel is like so amazed that they found two serious ladies and sent it to me. So I think like knowing where you're sending will save you a lot of heartache also. Mm. That'd be my advice. And then, you know, I went to a lot of readings, like a ton of readings, and then like go up to that writer that you admire and ask them a question, Mm. you know, and sort of not be afraid and like don't see writers as, you know, the important people that maybe we're taught to see them (laughs) as. I mean, as a writer, God forbid anybody see me as an important (laughs) person that we're taught to be. (laughs) So that was Lauren Spore. She's the founder and editor of the digital publication Two Serious Ladies, and she also co-founded and produces the hit podcast Criminal. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we are hoping that you both check out Two Serious Ladies and Christy Harvey, Wood, Christy Woodson Harvey's work. Um, we both really recommend it. And so what I'm curious right now is, Anita, is this bringing up anything for you <laughs> for about your reading life now? Great question. Um, I feel like my reading life now, so I've read more in 2016 than I have like the past few years, but by read, I mean listen mm-hmm. to things on audiobook, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I feel like just fits me better now in my lifestyle. I feel like I'm in the car more and walking my dog more. Um, I think I really do like almost exclusively read women authors, though, mm. lately. I feel really pulled toward that um and that perspective i guess i wrote yeah i think i've read like one book by a man in the past year i think yeah i read like almost exclusively women writers but i was trying to think back on my childhood and i feel like i did like i always was drawn to female protagonists but never thought that much about who was writing the work and i feel like now for me it's sort of the opposite like Mm -hmm. i don't care as much about what the content is about as i do about the perspective of the author um so yeah that's what i've been thinking about how about you well so sometimes i feel a particular kind i mean i think a lot of people feel this way it's like god i should be reading more (laughs) yes i mean and that translates not only to you know actual books but also like the news or the New Yorker, <laughs> long form journalism. Here I am as a writer of long form journalism, but I I've read quite a bit this year, and also I I do enjoy listening to book on tapes. So my favorite book I've read this year, well, there are two. One is fiction Americana, yes, which I mean, oh my god, that book is a masterpiece yeah it is a mess it just gave me so many feelings and it made me think about so many different things and I just recommend it Mm -hmm. for everyone and then I read a home of my own or house of my own by Sandra Cisneros and she is a feminist writer who actually let's bring an awful circle as we like to do train at the Iowa writers workshop Mm -hmm. and I my boyfriend's mom gave me that book for Christmas and she didn't I mean, she not read Sandra Cisnero. She was like, I just think you might like this. And she gave it to me when we were visiting his family for Christmas. And I was like the nerd on the couch reading <laughs> the book while everyone was playing board games because I just got so wrapped up in it and thought it was really, it was life-changing for me to read a book that's, it's somewhat like a memoir written by a woman who is so reflective and considerate mm. in both compassionate and critical about her own life story and it made me think about what it would be like for me to interrogate my own life in that particular way well thank you guys for listening we had really a lot of fun with this episode and we're so grateful for our guests who came on and gave us their time as always yeah um and she and her is a radio show and podcast produced in the studios of whup in hillsborough and we produce here every week but you can find us on twitter 
Facebook and Instagram at She and Her Radio or on our website, sheandherradio.com in the interim when you can't listen to us live. What a shame if you can't. <laughs> <laughs> and we thank Cameron Laws and Sam Gerwick for our theme music and everyone who listens for their support. And all of our episodes are available on demand at iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.